Before we join David, welcome everybody out. I'm happy to be here and certainly thankful for the opportunity to teach and to study and to uh, look into the Word of the Lord. And we're just encouraging everybody to get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 16 as we look at this uh, just a great text of, of Scripture here. Uh, just a very important text and uh, certainly lots of things to learn and be gained as we look into the text. And we hope that we are seekers of truth. And that's what we need to be seeking is the truth. Because Jesus said you should know the truth and the, and the truth shall make you free. And that's all that I'm interested in. And if we miss it some way, please be a friend. Point it out to us. Here in the book of Matthew chapter 16, we begin by just reading the text. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say you are John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he says unto them, he says unto, says unto them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, the for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that's our study as we talk about Jesus, the promise to build his church upon this rock is our study. We begin by just kind of looking at the map of the location where it takes place, this teaching of Jesus up here at Caesarea Philippi. You see it up there with the blue line pointing to it. There at the, uh, near the base of Mount Hermon. I was, I was interesting. I was reading last night, uh, great thing about electronic, uh, Bible is like you can just click on words and get definitions. Uh, Philippi is an interesting term. Anybody know what the word Philippi means? That's an interesting term. It means lover of horses. I, I thought that was interesting. One who's very fond of horses. That's what it literally means. So, so kind, of, kind of interesting. Uh, but anyway, it's near the base of Mount Hermon. You see Mount Hermon up there. It's uh, kind of right there. And you think, well, that seems like a far away. Well, there's a reason why it's far away. Because Mount Hermon is a pretty big mountain there. It is the tallest mountain in Israel. The peak is 9,232 feet. And uh, just a very massive mountain. And of course, people... Uh, kind of built uh, along uh, along the base of the mountain, and Caesarea Philippi is near Mount Hermon, a majestic mountain. That's one of the beautiful things I, I like about Ecuador is the majestic mountains, and they are snow covered year round. Even though Ecuador is the Spanish word equator, and they are right on the equator, and the sun rays are very intense. They are extremely tall mountains. Uh, the Chimborazo is the second largest mountain in the Western Hemisphere, a little taller than uh, Mount McKinley or Denali up in Alaska, but it is majestic, always snow-covered, and certainly they are majestic to look at. And so it would be in, in this area where Jesus is doing this teaching. Now, as we turn, uh, as we turn to another photo, this is where they think Jesus did the teaching here. 
in this area right here in this place. And, and you see lots of rocks there. And, and that, of course, will kind of play into what we're going to talk about here momentarily when we actually study the text here as we think about Caesarea Philippi. But we begin by noticing some questions that are asked and sort of the answers as they sort of go back and forth here as they talk about it. All right. Jesus asked the question, who do men say I the Son of Man am? And you know that, that, that's kind of a, that would be kind of an odd question for anybody ask, anybody else to ask that question. It'd be like Rick. He led the scene up here and, and Rick say, well, who are people saying that Rick Harris is? Oh, he, he's a guy, he's a member at Lakeside, and he's a fellow led singer this morning. I mean, you, you wouldn't think much about that, but it certainly makes sense about Jesus, about the Son of Man, because he was kind of a unique character. I mean, he was doing some pretty special things as he was going around healing people and, and cashing out demons and, and raising people from the dead and, and some pretty, pretty marvelous things because he was a marvelous person. And so he asked the disciples, well, what are people saying? You know, they were out and about, and you would be among people, and conversations would be, uh, he would be a person of interest that would be talked about. And so what are people saying about the Son of Man? Well, they actually had all kinds of different answers there. As we look at verse 14, well, some were thinking, well, maybe he's John the Baptist raised from there, because John had been beheaded by Herod, as we learned back in chapter 14. And maybe they're thinking, well, he, he's John the Baptist, that he was raised from the dead. Or, or maybe he was Elijah. You remember the book of Malachi ends the promise of the coming of Elijah, which was really fulfilled in John the Baptist, as you see in Matthew chapter 17. A very fiery individual as he came and, and just called, called a spade a spade. I mean, just, you know, speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. That, I mean, that was kind of the, the character of Elijah and that was the character of John the Baptist. I mean, he was pulling down mountains and he was lifting people up and just telling people straight up, this is, this is the truth, this is the way, as he was preparing the way for Jesus. So, they think, well, maybe he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, or maybe he's Elijah, or maybe Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now, all these are certainly great characters in the, in the plan of God, as you think about the prophets and the great things that they did, but still would not really come up to really the position that Jesus truly would hold. And so he raises the question in number 15, well, what do you all think? Well, what do you think about the Son of Man? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, he speaks up and he gives the truth of the matter of really who Jesus is. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, when you talk about Christ, you talk about Messiah. They're just simply, they mean the same thing. They're just from two different languages. It's like saying gracias and saying thank you. They just two different languages. They mean exactly the same thing. Christ means anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew term, and it means the anointed one. And when we talk about Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one, that is sort of, well, very rich in meaning. The anointed one. Well, who were anointed people in the Old Testament? Well, you had kings were anointed. You had prophets were anointed. You have the priests were anointed. And that is not by accident that Jesus is called the anointed one because he serves in all three capacities. He is our king, he is our priest, and he is, of course, a prophet. He is God's prophet for today, 
And a prophet is simply one who speaks for God. That's the fundamental concept of the idea of the prophet. And so when we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ is not like a, like a, like a last name. You talk about uh, Luke Hale, you know, Hale being a kind of family name. No, it's, it's not like that. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Messiah is that He serves in all capacities here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what's interesting about that, living God, is in contrast to the dead gods, the dumb idols. That is, idols that can't speak. They have, they have eyes, they can't see. They have ears, they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They are speechless. That's the idea of being dumb. That is, the, the incapacity to speak. And that's, that's when you think about the idols and the false gods, is that, well, they really can't say anything, because they're just really the figment of somebody's imagination. But God is a living God, as opposed to the dead idols. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus points out that this was a matter of divine revelation. He says, blessed are you, Simon uh, Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. And this word blessed, you know, we have the beatitude, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek, etc. And, and we see the word blessed. It's really a, a marvelous word. It, it would be similar to our word happy, but, but happy... So often happiness is related to what is happening. That is all kinds of good things are happening in your life. You know, you got health and you feel good or the weather is pleasant or, you know, you, you got, you got a, a, a promotion at your job, you got a new car. And so things that are happening makes you happy. But blessedness, it refers to an inward joy and happiness that's not related to outward things. And that's why you can have Paul and Silas who have been beaten and thrown into an inner prison, yet they are blessed because on the outside they're hurting. I remember as a kid getting like a switch taken to me and stripes on my legs. It's like, that hurts. That hurts for a while. It kind of stings. Well, I'm sure those stripes that Paul and Barnabas received, or Paul and Silas received, they hurt for a while, but there was this inward happiness and joy. And that's the flavor of the term blessed. And so when you see blessed, it's talking about inward happiness, even though things may be a wreck on the outside, the inward happiness and joy and contentment is always there. And so he's ble- he says, Blessed are you, Simon, or Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee. It wasn't that somebody sat down and said, well, you know, let me explain this. Or that, you know, he says, whoa, it just sort of comes to you by flesh and blood. No, it was a matter of divine revelation that he talks about there in verse 17. My father, which is now, he's revealed this. We have to get it from God. There are things that we're only going to get from God. I mean, it's like Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows its handwork so we can look out into the skies and, and we can see in the skies that God says, I am, I exist. And that God is the maker. But the specifics, we have to come to God and He has to explain those things in, in the written revelation and express that. And that's, that's the way it is, that God had revealed these things to Peter. And, of course, He reveals them to us. How? Well, through the Word. Through the Bible. We have, we have this book called the Bible. And this book is the information that emanates from God to explain to us 
And to show forth what we need to know and to explain uh, the mind of God to us. Because we're not going to get it by like telepathy. It's like, mm, you know, we get it. It's not going to be like in the Star Trek movies where, you know, the Spock, he goes up there and holds uh, McCoy's head. You know, he like transfers all the information. It's not transferred that way. It's like, well, we've, we've got to hear it. We've got to learn it. It's got to come from divine revelation. And that's how, how we get it, is that we have the Bible to explain all these things. And then we turn to number 18, and we have the great promise here of Jesus promising to build his church. And to begin with, let me talk about kind of the wrong position and to explain why the position of our, of our, of our Catholic friends is wrong, because it will help us to understand what the position is. And uh, because the reasoning is, when he says... Uh, I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And you just go to Bible dictionary, and the word Peter, it does mean rock. And so the reason is, Peter, your name means rock, and upon this rock that is upon you, I'm going to build my church, because you're going to be the first of, of a whole succession of, of popes, that is, of the papacy, that is, the, the organization of, of, of those who would serve as the vicar of Christ. Vicar of Christ, vicar just simply means one who stands instead of. That is, that he would be the earthly representation of the head of the, of, of the church, that is, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the office of, of the papacy. Well, now that's, that sounds, sounds pretty good, sounds reasonable. Well, you're, you're a rock, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. Well, let me explain why that position is not correct. We'll give the evidence and show that evidence. All right, first off, is that, yeah, the word Peter, it comes from the word Petros, and it does mean rock. It's your Bible dictionary. That's, that's what it means. But then the second word that's translated rock, it comes from the word Petra. Now, Petros and Petra, you see, well, that's a little bit of difference. Now, why, why is that? Why is there a difference? I mean, in the New Testament language, I mean, they have exact language like, you know, we have language. Sometimes there's words that can be sort of ambiguous, but then sometimes you use words and it gives a clear distinction. So there must be some distinction. Why do you say, well, you are Petra and upon this Petra I'll build my church? Well, I think we can explain by just a couple of photographs, all right? That would be Petros, rock, like a stone. Probably that looks like a limestone, the material. You could have a granite stone. You could have a sandstone. And so Petros would be be like that, that, that small rock. But then when he says upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church, it would be more like Petra would be this rock. I mean, they're both made out of the same material. That is limestone. I mean, limestone, limestone, it's the same but you wouldn't think that they carry the same ideals if you talk about, you know, this rock over here in somebody's head and this rock of me standing up on this big rock. And that, by the way, is down the Cumberland River. And it's a big rock just down below the falls. And you can see where the river's been up at time because there's like all this uh, trees and all that. And it hasn't moved that rock because that's a pretty massive rock. That probably weighs, I don't know how many tons, but maybe 50, 60 tons. And it's been staying there for a long time. I've been to Covenant Falls different times, and that rock's still there. It's big. It's massive. And the imagery is of this big, massive, 
type rock, this big rock that's a big ledge rock, is something that's unmovable. And the point is, when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, you're thinking about not a stone, which, which is what the word Peter means, or Petronos, but the idea of Petra, that is this, this massive rock that, that's unmovable. And that's the point of the text. That Jesus says, upon this rock, that is, the, the confession that, that Peter made, is what he's going to build his church. And so, it is the confession. Because what Jesus was confessing was the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he was a man, yeah, he was, but he was God in the flesh. Emmanuel, his name is Emmanuel, among all the other descriptive terms about Jesus. God with us. He was God in the flesh. He says, well, how, how did that happen? How could God, you know, go into, you know, the little baby Jesus and into a man? I don't know. First Timothy chapter 3 says it's a mystery. Mystery means something you can't explain. But that doesn't mean you don't, you can understand the truth. The explanation, I don't know. I don't know how God came into tabernacle flesh, but God came into tabernacle flesh because Jesus was God in the flesh. And so it says, uh, Thou art Peter upon this rock, his deity, the, the, what Peter confessed. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And when you think about Jesus being the Son of God, this is where sometimes people get confused about this, that somehow that, 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 that God just sort of begat Jesus and he just sort of began with, with, uh, with, uh, being born of the Virgin Mary. Well, no, that's only his human side. His divine side has always existed. He was in the beginning with God. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was divinity. And the same was in the beginning with God. Jesus was God. He was co-equal with God. He is part of the eternal Godhead. And he took upon a tabernacle of flesh to come and bring about redemption for humanity, for us. And it's upon this confession. Now, when you talk about the idea of rock, this is, I think this is important to see, is you go back to Deuteronomy 32, where the idea of rock is associated with divinity. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 there, notice there in verse 15, it says, But Jeshurun, that is the ideal Israel, talking about Israel, wax fat and kick, and thou art waxing fat, and you've grown thick. Thou art covered uh, with fatness. Uh, then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. What does it mean, lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation? As Israel, is that they come into the land of Canaan and the land of plenty, and they had some watches, they just begin to forget about God. Begin to think small of God, the rock of their salvation. But if you notice, it's a capital R, the rock. That is referring to divinity, referring to Jehovah God. Notice there in verse 18, of the rock that begat thee. Again, a capital R, talking about divinity, the concept of rock. And when he says upon this rock, that is talking about the divinity that Peter confessed that he would build his church. Notice down verse verse 31. And you have a contrast between the living God and the false gods, the false deities. Verse 31 says, for their rock, you notice that's a small r, is not as our rock, a capital R. Even our enemies themselves uh, being judges. 
Right, their rock, small r, the deities, which is just merely the figment of somebody's imagination, their, their dream, like, you know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, or, you know, whatever tale you want to talk about, that was the, the deities, the false deities, the non-living entities, and the idols that represented these deities, and our rock, that is divinity, Jehovah God. <clears throat> And then it goes on to say there in uh, verse 37, where are their gods, their rocks, in whom they trusted? The rocks whom they trusted. Well, they put confidence in the false deities, and, and that's pretty sad that people do that. But our rock is Jesus Christ, that, because the church is built upon the deity and the divinity of Jesus the Christ. The, the confession that Peter made, and when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then notice there in 1 Peter chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, also makes the very same point. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look there in number 11. It says, but other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. See, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. It's like this building is laid upon a concrete foundation. It's pretty sturdy. Concrete's pretty sturdy material. And it's put down into the ground. And so this building is very stable. And that's the problem you see there uh, talked about in the book of Matthew chapter 7, building upon the sand. And like uh, some of the people out in California, they build in these hills and you know, they get a lot of sunshine out in California, but they build upon these hills. And then the problem is it gets saturated with rain and then it's like, well, mudslides and houses come sliding down the hill. And that's sad. But if you build upon a solid foundation, well, you have stability. And so the church of our Lord is built upon this solid foundation. He says, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, notice he says, I will build. When Jesus is speaking here, he says, I will build. Now, that's future tense. He didn't say, I've already built, as if it's already done. And that presents problems for some who try to associate the building of the church in the days of John the Baptist. And that's not correct. Because the church wasn't built in the days of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is dead. But yet Jesus says, I will build my church. Or it talks about uh, through the Gospels, uh, the coming of the kingdom associated with the church. And we see that, of course, in verse 19, about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That the reign of God and the reign of Jesus Christ is associated with God's kingdom. And, of course, in throughout the Gospels, it was always, it's at hand, it's coming, it's coming, it's near, it's close by. And beginning in Acts chapter 2 and afterward, then the church is spoken of in the present tense, that the church is then uh, here, and the reign of God has began, beginning in Acts chapter 2, it's always in the present tense. I talked about in the future tense. Why? Because then the church was established, the church was built, the church came into being, the reign of God began as Jesus uh, send it back on high and took upon uh, his place on the throne of his father, David. But he says, I will build my church. Now notice, my church. He didn't say my churches. He says, I'm going to build my church. That's singular. He says, I'm going to build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to build my churches. Somebody says, oh, yeah, 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 but wait, 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 wait. How, how can Jesus promise to build my church when, when we got all these churches today, all these different churches? And somebody said, well, what about the New Testament? You read about the seven churches of Asia. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. 
Oh, what about the churches of Galatia? Well, what about that, these plurality of congregations? Well, there's an answer to that and a passage to consider. And that's in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, For this cause have I sent unto you uh, Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. You see, in the local congregations... Yeah, there were plurality of local congregations, but they were all taught the same things of those who were taught apostolic doctrine. You, you don't have in, in these local congregations, well, now one was taught one thing, well, you could sprinkle for baptism, and then over here, well, you could pour for baptism, and another congregation, they were taught to, to immerse, to be buried with the Lord in baptism. No, they were all taught the same thing. So yeah, there were a plurality of local congregations, but Jesus promised to build His church. That is, in the universal sense, and the local congregations, of course, were all taught the same things. And so that's why you have the unity and the single uh, single uh, concept there. And then he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Well, I think we can explain that easy enough as we talk about Hades, right? Well, what is Hades? Well, Hades is the place of disembodied spirits. According to James chapter 2, when a person dies physically, there is the separation of the inward man and the outward man. The inward man separates from the body, the tabernacle of flesh, and what happens? The body dies. The heart quits beating, it quits breathing, etc. But it's that separation is true physical death. Sometimes people define death as, well, you know, the heart, start, the heart stops beating. Well, that's not necessarily true because sometimes you can heart stop beating and, and people they do recitation or do those shockers and, and they're sort of brought back to life physically that is the heart starts beating again or maybe you're out on the ice and you break through the ice and you're down in the water and so you quit breathing for the next 30 minutes well you really haven't died it's like well then because of the cold and you're not breathing it's like okay the heartbeat starts going down and and, you know, they get them out and, and they're resuscitated. They start breathing again, but they're not physically dead. Why? Because the spirit never separated, never separated from the body. But when a person truly dies and the spirit or the soul or the inner man separates from the physical body, that's when physical death takes place. Now, what happens to the body? Well, it goes to the grave and there it returns. It decomposes back to dust. What about the spirit? Where does the spirit go? Well, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it returns to God who gave it. That is, it comes under God's control. While my spirit resides in this body, my body can say, or my spirit can say, okay, body, go to the other side of the table. Okay, just did that. My spirit says, all right, go back to the other side. So I go to the other side. You see, when your spirit's in your body, you have control. You do what you want to do according to your spirit because your spirit has control over the outward body. But when we die, the Spirit returns to God who gave it, and then God puts that Spirit in the realm of Hades, the place of disembodied spirits. And there the Spirit resides. Now, the thing about the, 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 the realm of Hades is that it talks in the text about the gates of Hades. And the thing about these gates, they're kind of like these uh, one-way turnstiles. You know, if you went into the right side of that, that uh, one-way turnstile, you couldn't come back out because it only turns one way. 
And to come back out, it's got these other stationary posts, and, and so you can go through, but you can't come out. Well, that's the way Hades is. People die, and the spirits go to Hades. Well, they don't come out of the grave. And these gates are very strong. You think, well, you know, I'm going to go busting out. No, you're not going to go busting out. Your spirit goes to the Hadean realm. There it shall be. You don't have the power to come out of these one-way gates. And so the point is, when Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, Jesus is making this promise while he's a living then he's going to be crucified and he's going to be buried. His body's going to be put into this tomb. His spirit is going to go to the realm of Hades. But the gates of Hades will not stop him from fulfilling his promise. Why? Well, because he, he came forth from the grave the third day. Early that Sunday morning, early that first day of the week, he arose from the dead. When we die, it's like, okay, well, we're dead and that's it. We, we, we can't overpower this. But Jesus had the power to overcome and to be raised from the dead. And so that's the point that he's trying to make. And the gates of Hades should not prevail against him. It's not going to stop him from building his church. Now, you think about various characters of history. Like in Germany, Adolf Hitler. Oh, he got the people of Germany all hyped up about this glorious Third Reich. This glorious reign of the, of the German people and, and the people bought into it. Well, it didn't turn out so good for them. And Adolf Hitler, when they say he committed suicide, and all his dreams came to an end. All his grandiose promises to the people. It was crumbling down and then he died. And so what happened to his dream in Mein Kampf? Well, it's all kind of come to an end, sadly. Well, why? Well, because he died and there he is. He's dead. He's in the tomb. And all his promises came to an end. And those who put their confidence in him. And so it is. Maybe somebody has a dream. You know, they want to build this business and they're saving up and they die. And so often that dream just comes to an end. Why? Because the person dies. Because they're the ones that are, uh, that are the, 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 the masterminds of this great dream and plan that they have. But not Jesus. Yeah, he had a he had a plan of building this church, and yeah, they killed him. Yeah, he died. Do you know what? He came forth from the grave triumphant, and that's his whole point. The gates of Hades shall not prevail. It's not going to stop him from bringing forth uh, his plan to fruition and to bring forth his plan. These one way one style uh, turnstile is not going to stop him. Why? Because he had the power to overcome and be raised from the dead. And then in verse 19, he makes the promise. And he says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I like the, I like the imagery here because it has like old time keys. And what do we have keys for? Well, keys represent authority. It's like I got a pocket full of keys. Got a key here to, to the Ford Escape out there. Got a key to my little pickup truck. Uh, got a key to the house. Got a key to the shed. Well, what do the keys represent? Well, they represent the power, the authority. If I give you these keys, then you have authority then to get into the car, even though it's locked. You can unlock it. And then you can turn the ignition on. You can drive the vehicle. Why? Because now you have the power, the authority. And the point is, Jesus says, I will give unto thee. Still speaking to Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's important to notice in chapter 18, verse 18, all the apostles were given this authority. 
He says in chapter 18, 18, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall, ye shall bind on earth. One of the things I like about the King James when it uses the word ye instead of you. Sometimes we say you, singular. Sometimes we say you, plural. But when it says ye, it's plural. He says, whatsoever ye, that is you apostles, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall uh, loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So what was promised to Peter in chapter 16, chapter 18, all the apostles had this power. And so we're always turning to the work of the apostles as we're opening the Scriptures. And they had the keys of the kingdom, that is, the power to bind. And the idea of bind is to tie up or to chain up. Like if you chained up somebody, well, if you had chain and lock, you're going to have to have a key to unlock it. If you had a chain, you can like tie things down or you can have a key and unlock it and to loose it. And that's the imagery. And the apostles, they had the power to bind, to say, this is God's will, this is what we've got to do, this is what God says. When it comes to how to be saved, or worship, and what's involved in worshiping in spirit and truth, or the work of the church, or church discipline, any anything that God has bound through the apostles, that's the way it is. He's tied it down, he's locked it down, and we're not we don't have the power to undo it. And what the apostles loosed, like to say, well, we're no longer bound by like the Sabbath law, we're no longer bound by dietary laws of the Old Testament, etc. Okay, those things are loose. We don't have to do them. They're no longer binding upon us. And the apostles, they're the ones that had this power. And they, they demonstrated it in their lives and then in their writings as it has been recorded for us. And so we're always seeking to turn to apostolic authority because they were the ones set first in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. And so Peter had the keys of the kingdom. And he exercised those keys on the day of Pentecost when he opened the door to say, hey, look, here, entrance into the kingdom of God, into the church of the Lord. This is what men and women must do to be saved. Or you have Peter opening the doors to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 there to Cornelius and, and his family and friends as he opened the door and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and they also became recipients and uh, were blessed by becoming members of the church of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, the apostles, they had tremendous power, not intrinsically within themselves, but empowered from on high because they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and by miraculous powers. By inspiration, they gave to us what Jesus at all was brought to their remembrance and then to teach all the things that were needed and, and known and was written down in this book called the Bible. And that's why we're always studying this book so we can know what the church of the Lord's all about and what the plan of God's all about of how to be saved and how to make our life right is all right here in the pages of inspiration. And so we're always turning to the book to be students of the book. When we talk about being disciples, we're talking about being learners, being students. It's like we've got kids, got lots of kids, and they all go to school in various places. And they get textbooks, mathematics, and, and uh, English, and, and science, etc. And these textbooks, they learn the various topics. Well, we have our textbook. It's called the Bible. And that's why we're always turning to it and appealing to it. Because the Lord's church is built upon the truth that is contained herein. That we can be the kind of people that would be pleasing unto the Lord. 
So the question is, are you a member of Christ's church? You can be a member of Christ's church. God's plan to save is revealed and explains to us how to, how to get into this relationship with Christ. To come into Christ. Because when it talks about being in Christ, he's talking about a relationship with Christ. And a relationship with Christ comes by stepping out on the, upon the steps of salvation. Upon God's plan of hearing this good news and believing in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. To have full, total confidence that He is the Son of God. To repent and turn, to confess faith uh, before man and to be baptized. And we come up out of that water grave after we're baptized into Christ. And what are we told to do? Well, be faithful. Just keep serving the Lord. Keep following after Him. And then if we do that, we've got a second law part, and that is to come back through repentance and prayer. And so if you're here, and you want to be a part of the church that Jesus promised to build, His church, it's not my church, not Josh's church, not Randy's church, not anybody's church in particular, it's Christ's church. If you want to be a part of Christ's church, you want to be a part of Christ's kingdom, and His family, you can. How so? Well, by stepping out in faith and obedience. Nobody can make you do it. You have to do it of your own accord. Nobody's going to force you. If, you, if, if it's forced, it wouldn't be, wouldn't, wouldn't be worth anything. But you have to do it because you want to do it. You have to do it because you want to be a Christian. You want to be a servant of Christ. Nobody made me obey the gospel. I obey the gospel because I say, hey, boy, this, this is it. This is, hey, this is the truth. This is, this, is, this is the truth that is, is revealed, and I want it because I want to be saved. I don't want to be lost in sin. I want, to, I want salvation. I want to go to heaven. And so I just stepped out on the truth. And so we just try to explain and show and demonstrate, here's the truth. But you have to make the decision. If you want to make that decision to obey the gospel, you come and let us know if there's any way that we can help. We'll be happy to assist you while together as we stand and as we sing.